Hello, I'm Shane Hartsfield, pastor of Beaver Baptist Church. Thank you for listening to our weekly podcast. If you have any questions about what it means to follow Christ or questions about our church, direct you to our website, beaverbaptist.com, for our contact information. Weekly, we study exegetically through books of the Bible. And now, join us as we dive into today's passage. 1 Samuel chapter 21, page 289. In your pew Bible, we're going to walk through this text rather quickly. So if you don't have your Bible, turn there. The black pew Bible in front of you. And turn to page 289. If you don't have your Bible, I encourage you to do that. We're going to be looking through this text, chapter 21, and also chapter 22, which we didn't read. That's why you need your Bibles. Why is it that we live... Here in America, in the Bible Belt, many of us grown up with people who have shared the gospel with us. We, some of us, many of us have gone to church. And um, why is it that we can hear the gospel? And why is it that God in His mercy opened our spiritual eyes and ears to hear the gospel when those around us are oblivious to it, blind to it, deaf to it, but yet He opens our spiritual eyes and our spiritual ears and he regenerates our heart so we can trust him, we repent and we trust Christ and his work on the cross as our own and we're given the Holy Spirit, we're forgiven. We have Christ's righteousness imputed to us so now I'm as righteous in Christ as I'll ever be. Why is it that that has happened for you and to you and to me? I do not know when there's people all over the world who's yet to hear this incredible, sweet gospel message. Why is it that we can come to worship today because we want to come? Many of us, there's no place we'd rather be than right here, and yet there's family members who don't want to be here. There's neighbors that don't want to be here. There's coworkers that this is the last place they'd ever want to be. Why is it that we're here and we desire to be here? It's because God is merciful and gracious. It's not because we're figured it out and we're better or smarter. None of that. It's because of God's mercy. And that should compel us and motivate us to share this sweet gospel message time and time again with those who are lost. 1 Samuel chapter 21 and 22. We're going through this series, Need for a King, and Loving it. It's life been life-changing for me, and I hope it's been for you. It's been really sweet to go through this narrative text. It's seeing how God is raised up in the time of great darkness, in the time of the judges. All of a sudden, God is raising up Samuel, the prophet. And we see comparisons, don't we? All throughout this book, Samuel being compared to Eli. And he grew up in Eli's household. We see Samuel living righteously in the nation of Israel, wanting to be like all the pagan nations around it when God has set them apart. How ridiculous. What a ridiculous request. But they make this request, and God grants it to them and gives them a king, Jerry, a king just like all the other nations, a head and shoulder above everyone else, a king Saul, and it's become an utter failure. 
And where we pick up in chapter 21, chapter 22, David is on the run from Saul and everyone is pulling for David. Jonathan, Saul's son. Michael, Saul's daughter, they're all on David's side. And why is that? Because the Lord is with David and the Lord is with him. The Lord is on David's side. And I think about that. Who I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Who do you pull for when you're watching sports? No one pulls for Goliath. Okay? Mr. Clyde, no one pulls for the Red Sox because they're... they're team is stacked. They should win. So Goliath, nine feet, nine inches tall. No one pulls for the Red Sox except Mr. Clyde. No one pulls for the Yankees. The Yankees are supposed to win. Their team is stacked. Their payroll is enormous. No one pulls for Goliath. Everyone always pulls for David, right? David's on the run because Saul is out for blood. He's trying to take his life. But David has been able to, in his father's pasture, he's able to not only ward off the, the bear and the lion, but to kill the bear and the lion and rescue the sheep from its mouth. David is able to defeat Goliath. David, David is able to pay the bride price, not for a hundred foreskins, but for 200, but with 200 Philistine foreskins in order to marry Saul's daughter, Michael. How is David able to accomplish all these things? He's able to do that because the Lord is with him. And not only is the Lord for David, but the Lord is opposing King Saul. We see in previous chapters, Saul is rebelling against the Lord. He didn't, he, he, offered a sacrifice when he's supposed to wait on Samuel. He's a king, not a priest. He disobeys the Lord there. Then he disobeys the Lord because he didn't wipe out all the Amalekites. And King Agag, he saved all the good animals, right? So he could sacrifice them to the Lord. Because of that, the Lord rejected Saul. But he's anointed, he sent Samuel to anoint David to be the new king. So God is for David and he's opposing Saul. And because of that, we see Saul fall short at every turn while David continues to succeed. It reminds me of Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us, right? I mean, David is... He is being victorious everywhere. So we come to chapter 21... The end of chapter 20, we see Jonathan and David coming to this conclusion that Saul is out for blood, and there's nothing that Saul will, will, will stop at nothing to kill David. And so David is on the run, and Saul's court is in Gibeah, which is about 10 to 15 miles north of Jerusalem. And so David leaves there, and he travels about five miles south to the city of Nob, and it's, it's where the priests live. And undoubtedly, the tabernacle had been moved to this location. And Ahimelech is there, and he's Eli's great-grandson. He sees David coming alone, and he's afraid. We read this text previously. 
And he's trembling. He's afraid like those in Bethlehem were. You remember when we read about Samuel going to Bethlehem to anoint the new king. And the people saw Samuel the prophet coming. And they're shaking, right? They're trembling. What's going to happen? The prophet of God is here. And it may be Ahimelech is trembling because he sees David, the warrior, the mighty warrior, by himself. And that shouldn't be the case. Or maybe because he was aware of what happened in Naoth, where all the prophets were prophesying when Saul came seeking David's life. Maybe he heard about that and he's, he's afraid. But Ahimelech asked David, why, were you, why are you alone? And David tells the priest he's on a secret mission. And then David asks for something to eat. Well, he's not honest with Ahimelech, right? But he asks for something to eat, and Ahimelech only has the bread of presence on hand. Now, the bread of presence was the bread that was changed out every Sabbath day. And there's 12 loaves, according to Leviticus chapter 24, one for every tribe of Israel. And Ahimelech is real scrupulous when it comes to the law. And he asked David if his men were ceremonially clean. See, only the priest could eat the bread of presence. They would put hot bread there, and they would take the bread that was from the, from the presence of the Lord, and they would pass it around, and the priest would eat that bread. But they had to be ceremonially clean. Now, if you had been intimate with a woman, that would make you unclean for a time. And so he asked, very meticulously asked him if that was the case. And David says, yes, of course, we are. So it's interesting. Ahimelech was all right with them taking the bread of presence and eating it as long as they did it in that Levite-like way. But the question for us is, well, why would he give the, the bread that was to be eaten by the priest to David? It's kind of puzzling. Could it be that he's putting compassion ahead of ritual? And we see that. Jesus even spoke of that in Luke chapter 14, you remember the Sabbath day rescue of animals. Jesus said to them, which of you, it's, it's, Jesus is healed on the Sabbath, right? And the Pharisees, they were uncomfortable with that. And he says, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? Well, you're saying we can't do anything. We can't work on the Sabbath. Well, think about it. There are times where we will work on the, on the Sabbath. And Jesus, of course, just healed a man. Wouldn't that fall under this category? But the Pharisees wouldn't have... They wouldn't have any part of it. And another time, Jesus was accused of breaking the Sabbath. He had healed a man, Mark chapter 2. And Jesus actually refers to the passage in 1 Samuel in Mark chapter 2. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain, and the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to them, Have you never read what David did? He's alluding to this very text, 1 Samuel chapter 21. When David was in need and hungry, and he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. So what's going on here with Ahimelech giving the bread of the presence to David for him to eat? Yes, he's ceremonially clean, or so he says, but why would he give it at all? Could it be that he's putting compassion ahead of ritual? Could it be that human need takes precedent over rules of the law? Well, Jesus rebuking the Pharisees, you're so meticulous, he says to the Pharisees. You're so cautious in keeping the law that you miss the point of the law. The Pharisees of Jesus' day, they opposed God's king in the name of 
obeying the law of God. They were compulsive, if you will, when it comes to keeping the law. And Dr. Tom Schreiner, he tells a story of a, a woman. She was a, going on a mission trip, and she loved the Lord deeply. And she's checking her bags in. And those of you who fly, you've had this happen many times. They ask the woman if the suitcase was hers. And she responds, no, it's not mine. Because it wasn't. She had borrowed the suitcase in order to go on this trip. But she says, no. And so what happened? What was the result? Chris, what happens if you say, no, this suitcase isn't mine? Yeah, they take it out and they go through every little piece and they, they're asking her about everything in, in, the, in the suitcase. So much so that she almost missed her flight. Saying no to that question is not helpful. It doesn't make sense. They're not at, all they want to know is, is the stuff in the suitcase yours and has it been with your person? Do you know what's inside the suitcase? She was trying to obey the law, but she missed the point, didn't she? Sometimes that's what was happening with the Pharisees. And that can happen for those of us who love the Lord. We want to be obedient to the law. We want to obey the Lord. But we can be too meticulous or excessive and miss the point. We want to dot every I and cross every T. And we miss the point. And what happens when we do this, folks, is we become self-righteous. And we begin to focus on ourselves and what we do and not the gospel, and not the grace of God. So in Mark chapter 2, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, Jesus says to the Pharisees. And Jesus is the very one to whom the Sabbath pointed. Jesus is the new David. We're going to get to that, right? We're looking at David and his life and how he's getting from the pasture to the throne. And we're going to celebrate David's life and how God used him in a mighty way in the nation of Israel. But ultimately, we're going to see David fail and fall. And he's the Messiah, but he's not the one and only Messiah that's going to meet all our needs, right? That is Christ. The reason that Jesus knows the purpose of the Sabbath command is because it was given in law to serve as a shadow to which he was the substance. People will now be called to find rest in Christ himself. He is the Sabbath rest that we should all draw near to. That's his point in Mark chapter 2. The law points to something greater. Jesus says Ahimelech was right in giving David the bread, and David was right to eat it. Look at verse 7. Doeg, the Edomite's present. We'll see him again. That's, that's something important. And David asked for bread, but he also asked for a weapon. He said, do you have not even weapons around? Because David didn't have any. Well, David gets Goliath's sword. And where did he go? I mean, think about this story. We couldn't make this stuff up. That's how we know the Bible's true. Because David gets the sword of Goliath, and where does he go? He goes to Goliath's hometown, Gath. And he gets there, and it appears that he's probably arrested, and he's brought before the king. And when he's brought before the king, someone recognized him, said, hey, and notice what it says. It's, it's, it's pretty interesting. Look at verse 11. And the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David, the king of the land? Notice they call him the king. Well, at this present time, who's the king? 
Saul's still king, but they say he's the king of the land, right? And did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and, ten, and David his tens of thousands. Now, let, let, I want you to understand the picture. He gets, he gets the bread, he gets something to eat from Ahimelech, and he gets the, the sword of Goliath, and he goes to Goliath's hometown. Not really sure why he went there. Maybe he just went to that, that territory, and he's taken into custody, brought before the king, and someone recognized him. They said, oh, you know that song that they sing? Saul has killed his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Guess what? Who's the ten thousands that he kills? The Philistines. And so all of a sudden, the realization of what's really taking place comes over David. And he's like, hmm, I'm not in a good situation. I've got, Dave, I've got Goliath's sword, who I cut his, you know, I, I killed him with, and I'm here before the king of the Philistines. So he's kind of in a jam. And so what does he do? Does he fight his way out or does he bribe his way out? No, he acts his way out. What does he do? He acts insane. He acts like he's lost his mind and he starts slobbering all over himself and doing all kind of weird stuff. And guess what? It works. Akish lets him leave. Yeah, pretty, pretty incredible, huh? I just see the hand of the Lord in on David's life, right? So David pulls off this ultimate escape. He won an Academy Award for his performance there, Hunter. Pretty incredible. I, you know what it made me think about last week when we said God's will will be done, but we must act? I see this happening because what has God done? He's anointed David king. He's going to be king of Israel, and so, but yet David has to act to bring about that event. Think about this. Was David, I mean, was David sinning when he lied to Ahimelech? And then he pretends to be insane? I mean, he's not exactly forthright, and he, he wasn't completely honest, but was this a sinful act? He lied about his mission, and then he acts insane. I'm not sure. I think something we have to wrestle with, I think. Was he being a deceiver, or was he just being wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove? And I think about Ahimelech, and I think maybe, possibly, he's trying to protect Ahimelech. It's kind of like the less Ahimelech knows what he's doing, the better. And I've experienced that in my own life, being overseas, working among people who've never heard the gospel, and you find some people who surrender to the Lord, and you're trying to train these people up, and you know, there's people that we never let them know who support us, and all of those details, because the less they knew, the better. So I don't know, I've just been thinking through that. I think we have to wrestle with that, something we can discuss in small group. Next week, chapter 22, we move on to this next chapter, and we see the first few verses. David, he's an ancient Robin Hood as he gathers his merry men to himself. Look at verse 4 of 22. David departed from there. He escaped, right? And he goes to this cave, and when his brothers and his fathers heard of it, they went down there to him. Look at verse 2 of chapter 22. And everyone who was in distress, 
Notice what it, how it describes these people. Everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. So what does, Jesus, what does David do? He's gathering these, a small band of men. But they're the deplorables, right? They're the ragamuffins. They're the vagabonds. They're the outcasts. They're the not people that you would choose to be on your side. And it kind of it made me think of Jesus. When Jesus gathered his disciples around him, he had men that weren't, weren't all that they weren't all that great of men. They were tax collectors and the like. Well, he, he gathers these men around him and then he goes to Moab, he's seeking a place for his parents to, to take refuge in. And it's interesting he goes to Moab because we know Ruth, David's great-grandmother, she was, a, she was from Moab. Look at verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him, and Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to the servants who stood about him, here now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? And he goes into complain because no one tells me where. He's saying, no one's going to tell me where David is. Why are you taking his side? What's David given to you? And it made me think of chapter 8, verse 11 through 14, when the, the Israelites asked for a king, Samuel, speaking for the Lord, says, do you know what kind of man your king will be, and what will he do? These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and run before his chariots, and he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground, to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your what? Fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. So what is, what is Saul doing? Exactly what Samuel the prophet said he would do. He's going to take your stuff and give it to his men. And he's saying, hey, has David ever given you these things? Why won't you tell me where David is? He's, he's done nothing for you like I have. And then verse 9 of chapter 22, Doeg speaks up. He ratted out Ahimelech, and he tells them that Ahimelech has been helping David. So they bring Ahimelech before Saul and Saul is very suspicious, he's very paranoid, he's very guilty. And why is that? He assumes others are like himself. And is that true in life? You have jealous husbands? Why are husbands jealous? Could it be that they're not very faithful themselves? Or someone who's always thinking somebody's lying to them? Well, maybe they're thinking everyone's lying because they're a liar. Maybe not always the case, but I think that sometimes the, that's the truth. Verse 14 and 15, Ahimelech is falsely accused, and he responds much like Jonathan did. He appeals to reason, which Saul has none. Verse 14 and 15 of chapter 22, then Ahimelech answered the king. He, he's accused of mistreating Saul and helping David, and he responds, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David? 
David's been faithful to you. Why would I not help him? Reason number two why I should help David. He's your son-in-law. I mean, think about it, Saul. You're trying to make your... You're trying to kill the, the man your daughter loves. You're trying to make your daughter a widow. Makes no sense. And captain over your bodyguard. I mean, he's... He's a general in your army, man. Come on. You put him over your army. Why would I not help him? And he's honored in your house. He's the hero who killed Goliath. Remember? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. I've I've inquired before for David. Why would I not do that again? Well, verse 16, Saul doesn't like the response, and so he orders that Ahimelech and the priest be killed. What's well, interesting, the servants don't obey. But guess who does? Oh, Doeg. He not only kills Ahimelech, he kills his family, and he goes to Nob, and he kills the city of Nob. He puts it to the sword. That's insane, isn't it? Remember what we talked about? Wickedness is, is, is insane. It doesn't make any sense. Why was Saul rejected as king? Because he didn't destroy the Amalekites. He didn't kill the king and he didn't kill all the the animals. But yet he's not only willing but ordered that the entire city of Nob be killed along with God's priest. That's insane. That makes no sense. Saul is out to get David and David's on the run. Sometimes it, I mean, it appears he has nowhere to go, but God provides a way. Robert Orban, he's a comedian, he says, sometimes I get the feeling the whole world is against me, but deep down I know that's not true. Some of the smaller countries are neutral. That's true of David. It's like, man, he's, everybody's out to get him. But we see a couple things we see in this text. Firstly, is we see the sovereign God we serve, provides for his people, and that's what he does for David. God provides the bread, even though it's the bread of presence, he provides bread for David. And Look at chapter 22, verse 3, real quickly. And David, he goes to Moab, looking for a place of refuge for his parents. He says, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. God's going to provide for David. He's going to let him know what he wants him to do. And look at verse 5, two verses later. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Herod. So he says, you know, my parents are going to stay here, but I'm just going to stay here until the Lord lets me know what he wants me to do. And then what happens? Two verses later, the prophet, God spoke through Gad, the prophet, and let him know exactly what he wanted him to do. Yeah, God just provides for his people, doesn't he? He provides escape. He provides protection. And the second thing that we see here in our text is that God continues to be faithful to his word. Under nothing can thwart God's promises to his people. We finish up chapter 22. Ahimelech didn't know, God, uh, didn't know David's intentions. He was innocent. David didn't tell him the truth. And by coming to Ahimelech and asking for help, David sealed Ahimelech's fate. Because Saul not only kills him and his family, but put to death the whole city of Nob. But Saul, he did that because he's wicked. And Doeg did that because he's wicked. 
But look at verse 20 through 23. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. Notice what David does. He takes ownership of this. I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. Abiathar, one of Ahimelech's sons, escaped. And I say this text teaches us that God's faithful to his word because in 1 Samuel chapter 2, Eli wasn't very as faithful as he should have been to the Lord. This is what the Lord says to Eli in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now, Eli and his sons were not as faithful as they should have been. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me for those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. Abiathar is spoken of in verse 33. The only one of whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. Chapter 2, the Lord gave this promise through the prophet Samuel to Eli. And we see it coming to fruition here in 1 Samuel chapter 22. Saul and Doeg, they were opposing David, they're opposing God, but God's enemies only bring to pass God's word. Even by their very act of rebelling against the Lord and taking the lives of all these people, they are bringing to pass the word of God. And maybe for, for us, we've blown it. Maybe some of you, maybe you've blown it. You've rebelled against the Lord. You've been in your flesh. you sinned against the Lord. And you can't see past your circumstances you're experiencing right now, but God, He keeps all His promises for, for His children. I think about Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where God says, I am, Paul says, I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. I mean, we rebel and we get ourselves in these messes where we're, we're suffering the consequences of our sin and we can't see past it. Man, how are you going to do anything? How are you going to get me out of this mess? How are you going to fix this? How is this going to even work out? But yet God promises all these incredible promises. And if you're his child, he's faithful to keep his word to you. And that's a, for me, that is an incredible promise I, I think about daily. Lord, As sorry as I am, as much as I love myself, yet as a believer in Lord Jesus Christ, you are going to make me like you. You're going to complete this work you began in me. That's a great promise. It encourages us a lot. Now, application. What do we do as we close up here? Just a couple of things we can apply to this. I think 
Firstly, know that God's sovereign. I mean, what is God doing? He's bringing about his will, David's life. He anointed him king of Israel, and he's going to be king of Israel. So God's sovereign, and he's providing for those who love him. He gives us what we need. He's bringing about the fulfillment of his word. He doesn't slip. He doesn't forget. He doesn't falter. He's going to make David king, and he'll do what he's promised for us. Remember that. Secondly, David was, man, he was, he's mistreated a lot. You know, he's anointed king, and then once he's anointed king, bam, it's on. It's a struggle ever since. He's mistreated, his life's threatened, he's persecuted, he's hiding out in enemy territory, he's living in caves. But God's teaching David, and there's all these events are taking place. There's eight or nine psalms written about it. Uh, Psalm 56, Psalm 34, um, great psalms that we just didn't have time to look at today that he wrote during these experiences of chapter 21 and 22. So you can read those this week. But God's teaching David, and if you read those psalms, you'll see how he's just trusting the Lord. His enemies are out to get him, but he's trusting the Lord. Remember, God uses our difficulties to help us learn to trust him. It's been said, pain has been described as God's megaphone. It gets our attention through difficulties. Michael, is, she knows the Lord better. She's more like Jesus because her kidney failed her years and years ago. She'll tell you that, testify, I've learned a lot about the Lord through my sickness and my pain and my difficulty. C.S. Lewis says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pain. True statement. True statement. Another way that we apply this text, I think, is just, I think, remember that some texts are difficult. David, what's he doing here? Is he deceiving these people and all these people lost his life because of his lie? Or is he just trying to protect them? I'm not real sure. I think Romans 14, 5 says each, each one of us should be fully convinced in his own mind. I think we just need to wrestle with the text and come to those conclusions. It's interesting in verse 5, the prophet Gad speaks to David, and what does David do in verse 5 of chapter 22? He obeys. Are our lives characterized by obedience? I mean, can we say, can you really say, you know what, I really, I really have a heart, I really want to obey the Lord. That should be our, when someone describes us, Miss Patsy, pain, they should be able to say and how they describe her, all these things. They'll say she loves music, that she loves her family, faithful wife, faithful mother, da 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 But they ought to be able to say, you know, she really, she really wanted to obey the Lord. She really wanted to please the Lord. That was her goal in life, is to please the Lord. Is, is that true of you? Is that true of me? Something we need to ask ourselves. David, when the prophet told him what the Lord wanted him to do, he immediately obeyed. Good word for us today. Thank you for tuning in today. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast if this message has been helpful to you. Again, if you have any questions, go to our website for our contact information, and we'll see you next time.